0: Well, hey, how's everybody doing? wonderful. Good to see all of you guys. If you're brand new here, my name is John Wagler, and I'm part of this team. And uh, we're starting a new series uh, called The Death uh, of a King. And um, now you might be wondering, why the death of a king? Well, because Jesus is king and uh, we see this all throughout scripture, and that language uh, means a lot. Uh, this idea of kind of kingly ma- uh, language and royal language uh, actually means a ton, and so um, it's important for us to even phrase Jesus in this manner and understand that, and even when we just sing a song uh, like that, there's, man, I have nothing else um, fit for a king but to sing hallelujah, you know, and having that kind of reverence for who Jesus is becomes important how we, we see it, but there's also just the reality of uh, the cross and and what the cross means. And so we're going to talk about the cross uh, for the next uh, three weeks. And um, if someone were to ask you, how would you, like, what's the meaning of the cross? Uh, How many of you guys would feel very comfortable in saying a very succinct statement that was easy to understand and relatable? It's hard, right? It's, it's hard. So Some of you guys might be really good at it, and that's awesome, but to think about um, the cross and the depth and the meaning of it, um, it's actually like a really big deal. And, you know, as we kind of are heading into Easter season, the ability to articulate why the cross means something is actually kind of pivotal to our faith, right? The, the cross is a big deal. We, we at least know that part on the front end uh, when, we, when we think through, like, hey, um, What does it mean to to follow Jesus and everything? It's like, yeah, yeah, the cross, the whole cross and resurrection thing kind of matters, doesn't it, Uh, to our faith. But isn't it fascinating that when it comes down to our understanding of the cross, uh, how difficult it is for us to begin to articulate the realities of the cross and to be able to uh, share with someone, when someone's like, hey, well, why are you a Christian? And, and why does it matter that Jesus died on a cross? And, and we, uh, ideally, we would be able to like, say something about that, right? Ideally, we'd be able to be like, well, let me tell you why it's so important. And so often, it is hard uh, for us to be able to articulate that. And so over these next few weeks, my hope is, is that uh, we'll all have... Um, a moment at the cross, uh, and uh, I hope, and as I was praying over this series, uh, and we prayed uh, this morning with the band, that this idea of what it means to be set free by the cross um, is an understanding that we need to have, that we're not just saved you know, that for for like just that we can go to heaven, that we're set free towards life we're set free towards something, you know, through the cross. And so we're going to talk about um, those things uh, here this morning. Now, I will say this, my iPad is actually not working. And so they're not going to have any notes on the screen. Um, But when we think about the cross and what it means, is it working back there? No, you got nothing? Yeah. Well, here we go. So we'll figure it out. So when we think about this, you know, there's been so many different ways that uh, we use this cross and we figure out the cross and, and the ways that it is used in our... How many of you guys have a cross tattoo? That's cool. I mean, I'm not going to make fun of you. Uh, <laughs> maybe. maybe. Uh, no, I won't. Um, but uh, when we think about the cross and, uh, you know, you might have... Here's one option of how we think about the cross. But you think about, like, cross tattoos, and jewelry, is there anything wrong to have a cross, a cross tattoo? Of course there's nothing wrong um, with a cross tattoo or jewelry, right? But to a, a first century Roman, they would think it's super weird that you have like a sign of execution on you, you know, permanently. Um, but it's okay. Like, but, but to have the understanding of it, like this picture here um, was actually like, uh, it was from I think the late 80s or early 90s. And uh, I could do a whole series just on this picture of why it's wrong. Um, <laughs> But even the way we think about Jesus in and of itself, it's like, why would you make Jesus jacked? Why would he be like looking like that? And why um, is that like kind of like he's breaking away from the cross as as if for some reason he had to get off of it rather than experience it? You know, and even the way we think about Jesus in this manner of on the cross, on the front end, it's like, no, no, we're supposed to fight. We're supposed to be winners. And it's like, this feels like it's a losing thing, right? But there's so much more to uh, the cross. And so even the way we begin to process um, hist- like historically with the cross, with Constantine um, in 312, uh, I have a little picture drawing of it. And uh, if you've never heard of Constantine, um, he's one of the rulers uh, of Rome. And in 312, uh, he said during war that he had this vision up in the clouds of a cross. And, and that it, it, there, was a, there was like a phrase that went with it that was essentially saying to him that God was with him in this battle and uh, and that they were going to win. And so he then put the cross as like a banner going into battle. And then he had the cross on like armor and different other things and certain weapons that um, soldiers would use. and And even on the front end, it's like, What could go wrong with using the cross to kill other people, right? But like, as like a symbol. But what ended up happening was then in that environment and in the empire, uh, Christianity became the religion of the empire. And then they were, a lot of people were forced to believe in Christianity, right? And so it's like this merger started happening with um, the the empire and Christianity. And on the front end, it kind of sounds good, right? Because you're like, well, yeah, now like, all the Christ principles get you know, infused into the, 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 the empire and everything. And on the front end, and can there be some good things with that? Of course there can be. Um, but eventually what ends up happening is the faith gets watered down. And the teachings get watered down. And, and so we've experienced that here in our own country. But, it, but you see, like man, the, the cross wasn't used in uh, the right way. We've also seen the cross uh, used in this way. And uh, which is obviously a huge part of the story of our country around uh, racism and everything. And they would burn these crosses. And uh, the, even today, uh, it, it was recently as last year, you know, people were burning uh, crosses in our country. And you think about the impact that um, this image has for so many reasons. Why it's it's such clear evidence of evil and sin. And we see it manifested through, you know, racism. And what's interesting, sometimes even we've seen this with Christians and how they've responded to kind of racial conversations sometimes. And uh, one of the things I was thinking about was this image of the cross. And, and, you know, some people would be like, well, I would never burn a cross, you know. Um, but a lot of times what's happened in Christianity around the discussion of racism is you might not burn a cross, but you've allowed uh, kind of the racist thoughts to like burn the meaning of the cross off. And we begin to like, see that as like, uh, something that can happen to people. And we're like, whoa, the image of what the cross is supposed to be, it's like, man, we, we've really lost it. We've seen people manipulate the, the use of the cross, uh, even in political rallies and stuff, and, and you see it everywhere. It's a manipulation technique of, of how we begin to like, merge this idea of what the cross and Christianity is supposed to mean to, to kind of dupe people into thinking certain things. It's like we've we've really lost the depth and the meaning of the cross. And, and I think it's important for us to rediscover it or maybe discover it for the first time. Um, and so I want to talk about this because here's like the, the main thought um, for us this morning that we will either uh, reject, forget, or surrender to the cross. We will either reject, forget, or surrender to the cross. You know, when I was um, processing... Um, even for me, what I might say to someone uh, if they were to like, hey, like, why is the cross so such a big deal uh, to you? And uh, the, the, the way that I, th- I thought about it was this, is like on the cross, Jesus sets the standard for our mission, our vision, our values, and our identity. And on the cross, Jesus sets the standard for our mission, our vision, our values, and our identity. And so if you were to hypothetically say something like that to someone when they asked you, why is the cross important to you? What does it actually mean? This, that statement, of course, begs some more questions and some more information to go along with it. And that's when you kind of get into some of the details that we'll start talking about today. But ultimately, when I think about my own life and my own testimony and my uh, experience with uh, not only um, originally coming to Jesus, but then like, like, uh, growing up in the church and then really having my real faith moment um, after college, uh, where I began to really see the depth and understanding of what the cross actually meant in my life. And it's like it did. It, it reor- reoriented everything for me. Um, my entire mission, <laughs> my, my vision for my life, um, how I saw values in my life, and then my identity of who I saw myself as. And so that's how big the cross actually is supposed to be to us. Um, but too often, right, we, we reduce it all the time. And, and that's, like, really hard because we're like, man, this means so, so much. And I want to talk about that because in order to fully understand, like, who we are supposed to be, we have to understand what happened on the cross. And so we're going to go to Mark chapter uh, 15 and I want you guys to see um, this incredible passage uh, where we, we see Jesus is actually up on the cross. We're skipping some steps here of how he got there, but he's actually up on the cross now at this point. And so if you're not familiar, if you're just like walking into this whole faith thing and church thing and Jesus thing, um, here's the spoiler alert. Uh, he dies. He dies. Okay, and um, it's like, what? what? Um, but he, he dies. Like he has this um, miraculous life and does all these amazing teachings and does all these miracles. People start following him and everything, but there's also these people that want him dead. And so they, they put him up on the cross. And, and in a few weeks, we celebrate Easter Sunday, which means that he resurrected from the dead um, after a few days. But um, he, we want to take this scene because I want you to start seeing some things in the language that's represented here of why the cross is so important. Um, why it means uh, so much to us. And, and honestly, part of my hope is we'll also start seeing that the cross isn't just about you as an individual or me as an individual. That there's a bigger story that's being told here that you're engrafted into. Um, that's a really big deal. And you can't, a lot of times people say something like this, well, well, what happened on the cross is I was saved. And it's like I language. And is there a, a Personal element to this? Of course there is, right? Um, But it's actually bigger than that. And that's really important uh, to begin to see. So, starting in uh, verse 21, it says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him uh, to carry uh, the cross. So Jesus is heading up in this kind of coronation ceremony. Um, And it's so, you know, he's been whipped, he's been flogged, and he's bleeding and uh, stumbling around, and and he he can't fully carry the cross. And so this guy, Simon, comes to carry it for him. He says, they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, uh, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, uh, but he did not take it. Uh, Wine and myrrh mixed together is a narcotic, and so what it's used to do is essentially prolong suffering, okay? Um, it says, and they crucified him. Look at this language. So it's they offered, they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each, uh, what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king Of the Jews. And so there's this mocking tone that's happening, and they're saying, like, oh, the king of the Jews. So they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking uh, their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it three days, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, come down from the cross and save yourself. What's interesting about these people coming to insult him and saying, save yourself, if they spent any time around Jesus, they know this is the exact opposite of what he taught. He's always saying, like, you can't save yourself. And so he's, he, we, they should realize in that moment, even to insult him in his way, goes against everything that he taught. He says, in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. So these religious people, what did they do? They mocked him among themselves, right? There's this little thing that happens here. You can see them, like, they're off, like, together, and it's these religious people trying to portray a certain thing, but secretly they're mocking him. See, the other people are publicly insulting him and publicly mocking him, but the religious people, what are they doing? They present themselves a certain way, but then on the other side, they're, like, they're just mocking him, and, and it's like, mm, I wonder if that's still true today. He said he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. What are they doing? They're saying, hey, we'll believe in who you are if you do things on my terms. My gut feeling is that in this room today, you've treated Jesus the same way at different points of your life. Where you've said, hey, Jesus... Um, I'll fully trust in you if you do things, answer my prayer the way I want it to pray. Or I want it to answer. Like I'll live my life if I can still do and you want Jesus on your terms. And, and so when we want Jesus on our terms, and here's what, and this is like, this is why the Bible is so dang powerful. <laughs> We see this in religious people, and we see this in ourselves. Like, it's so easy to read this story, and we think to ourselves, you know who I would have been? The person at the cross going, I know it's you. (laughs) But that's probably not the truth. When I read this story, quite often... Um, It's so easy for me to think, you know what, I have actually tried to have Jesus on my own terms before, so there's a really good possibility I would have been the religious person mocking him secretly with my religious friends. We're going to also see that the disciples were gone. And sometimes I think to myself, "Mm, maybe I would have been them. Been in on the movement in the beginning, but I don't know, I might have been them. I'm not sure. It's so easy for us to think that we're like the holy, righteous person in the story, because we're like, oh my gosh, you guys saw the miracles. How, how could you deny Jesus? You saw everything. You heard him teach. How, how could you deny him? How could you ignore him? And I'm like, don't we all do that? And we've got 2,000 years of evidence now. They had like six seconds. And so it's important then to start how we see ourselves in this story. He says, "So come down now, and then, so when we see and believe, those crucified with him also heaped insults him." So picture this: like even the people that are crucified with him are also insulting him in this moment. It says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elo, ele, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, that is from Psalm 22. All right, so we'll remember that. Um, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Um, they just mistook, mis- they misunderstood what he was saying. He says, Someone ran, filled the sponge with wine uh, vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. It continues on. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed at his last. The curtain of the temple again, here it is again, was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, remember that as well, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said this, surely this man was the son of God. Something happened in that moment at the foot of the cross. Something that he said, the centurion said, like something happened. He says some women were watching from where? You can read Good job. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. We're going to see why that part is important too about um, the women. So I want us to see a a couple of things of, just two things of what we see here. Uh, It's kind of like a first layer of why this cross becomes so important. And why it's important for us to understand what it means for our lives. And here's the first thing that Jesus absorbs the wrath of sin. Jesus absorbs the wrath of sin. When we begin to see uh, the word about wrath, you guys might have, um, maybe you've heard it phrased in such a way as like receiving of God's wrath, that Jesus is handling God's wrath. Um, that's one way to think about it. I think when we look at kind of scripture in, in its totality, that Jesus is dealing with wrath, but he's dealing with the wrath of sin and what that means. So it's not like God is some angry father in the sky punishing his son. What he's doing is Jesus is taking on the realities of the wrath of sin. When you think about the wrath of sin, we've all experienced, because here's what we know, sin punishes us. Um, there's a vengeance to sin. There's an anger to sin. Sin that sin the realities of what it does in our lives. Uh, You think about times where you have been um, just hand-in-hand with sin in your life. Do you feel free? Maybe temporarily, but the truth is, as those things start playing out, you realize, oh, I'm actually not that free. I'm actually enslaved to this. And actually, this is actually hurting other people as well as it's hurting myself. And I sure don't feel closer to God in the moment of the sin either. And so we begin to see that there is a wrath of sin. And Jesus, what he does up on that cross is um, what we see at the cross is the ultimate form of shame, the ultimate form of humiliation, the ultimate reality of what sin does. Um, How many of you guys have dealt with shame in your life? Yeah, and what shame does is shame tries to keep telling you who you are. And what that is, is like, this is what sin does to us. It tries to distort our, our, our identity. And what the cross does is it restores it. And so this, this sin, it's like, man, we see Jesus on the cross. It's the ultimate. This is why he kept saying the culmination of sin, what it does is it brings shame in our lives. It, it brings humiliation in our lives. It brings a separation in our lives. And we see that Jesus upon the cross, this is why the language is they crucified. They did this. They did that. That's why I kept highlighting that. It's because the sin. what we see is like, man, the acts of sin of people ended up putting Jesus up on the cross. And so what Jesus does, he's like, I'm going to absorb all of this sin, the, the realities of this sin. And what sin does to people? So, what does sin actually do? Sin separates. Sin separates. So, sin separates us uh, from God. Um, if you think about, uh, if you think about any point of your life where you felt the furthest from God, guaranteed, there's sin right there with it. Even to anyone in this room who's like, you know what, you really got it together, you're really strong in your faith, you're really consistent in your faith, Um, you still feel the reality of sin because you are not perfect and you will sin. We all do. And in that moment, when you do it, and it can be small or it can feel small, you feel that little separation point. You feel like, oh, that wasn't right. That wasn't right. And you feel the little separation point. And here's the thing about what sin, sin never sits by itself, right? Sin never just, there's a ripple effect to every part of sin. Even when we look at a system that's really corrupt, let's say, whatever the system is. And, you, and you're like, well, how did that system get that way? It got that way because people were sinful, and so it's like, man, sin has this ripple effect in our lives. You think about um, Joe and I when we were setting up chairs this morning. We were just having like, uh, as we we're just having an economic discussion, as one do while setting up chairs. And um, and we were we were having like this just this discussion of what happens like you know uh, just around our system. And it's like interesting as we're talking because I'm like, yeah. Uh, the system is what the system is, but the reality is, is if one person sins in the system, it has a ripple effect. And then if another person sins, that has a ripple effect, and, and it has to keep going. It has to keep going. And, and we see this stuff all the time, like sin just kind of multiplies. And we have felt this in our own lives. And it separates us from God. It separates us from people. Uh, where are the disciples in this story? Somewhere else. Somewhere else. The closest people following Jesus were somewhere else. Why did that happen? Because here's what sin does. Sin separates us from the realities of who God wants us to be. And in that moment, what sin does is it makes you buy into fear. So I'm not talking about like fear of snakes or fear of jumping off something. I'm I'm talking about like the fear of other people. Uh, You can move into saying things like, well, we should certainly not love our enemy. That's a foolish teaching by Jesus. Because we're fearful of someone else. Well, how did that get there? Sin. It it separates us from God. And so we started saying, well, then how does fear creep in? Well, it's because of sinful thoughts and sinful things that begin to creep in around us. And it separates us from God. So what did the disciples do? They ran. They lived in fear. Uh, Were the women close or far away? Far away. See, a lot of times the women, like, you know, we think, man, the women were there. And they were technically there, but they were still at a distance. And it's like, ah, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And so there's still something there to be said about, man, sin begins to separate us um, from God. When we get to see, like, what are the crowds doing? Like, they're insulting, they're mocking, they're doing all of this stuff to Jesus, where a lot of them, not too long ago, were amazed by him, and were following him, and were trying to like whoa, the, the, the miracles of what Jesus is doing, and, and all of these other things. But, man, what sin does is it starts creeping in, and when the crowds get together you get a sinful crowd together and it's crazy you can get a like a, a, a crowd that is not focused on Jesus even if they start off and it feels like they're doing the right thing a crowd that's not focused on Jesus will quickly divert to whatever they want it's like man it feels good like what you're what you're talking about or what you' you might even be mad about it might be good it might feel like justice on the front end but it's like if you're not centered on Jesus it just immediately like Who's over here? Churches do the same thing. Churches that aren't like at the core of like who they are to, like, to be focused on Jesus, they, they can quickly go over. Why is that? Because there's a sinful element that comes in that separates us from what God desires. and when crowds get together, it changes everything and the faith gets watered down and you end up being about a side or a system and not about what Jesus actually taught. You know, even the largest Christian university um, that we have here with Liberty, you know the leader of it, well, no longer the leader of it. I'm Jerry Falwell. You think about how many people were buying into, how many Christians were buying into what he was selling and listening to him for so many years, yet you know recently in an article he talked about how he's not even a Christian. And it's like, how does that happen? Well, focus was never on Jesus, and then people got together, and what did it, 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 it diverted Christians' perspectives. And values, and everything, and we start seeing that's what sin actually does, and, and, and even before this point, if some of you guys know this part of the story, um, they put forth Barabbas and Jesus, we talked about this uh, a couple years ago, but they put forth Barabbas and Jesus, and Barabbas like was this rebel, he was a murderer, he was a sinful dude, and everyone knew it, but all the people, including some religious people, are literally yelling, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. It's like saying, give us the sinner, not the saint. And when you see something like that, you're like, oh, I would never. But the reality is, is we have ever. We've said to our own lives, you know what, rather than the saint, rather than the holy thing, rather than the righteous thing, you know what, give me the sinner. Give me the sin. Give me the thing that I know is going to end up taking me away from Jesus. And there's something in us. We're, we're drawn to it. We're drawn to this sin. And what Jesus is doing up on that cross, he's like, let me absorb the wrath of this so you can see something greater, so you can experience something greater in your life. Here's what sin does sin, um, well, I think I have it written down here. Yeah, sin will make you drift from Jesus first, then deny him altogether. That's how it works. You just kind of drift a little bit first. Then all of a sudden you're like, mm, I don't need it. That's what sin does. And this is why sin is so serious. And and um, we should never just play around with it. It's incredibly serious. Um, here's the other thing that sin actually uh, does. It ends in death. It ends in death. Um, everyone wanted Jesus dead. Um, but even when you see sin... Uh, you can feel like your relationships, they feel like they're ending in death. You can feel like you aren't free and it feels like you're just like dying inside. Um, and the, in this story, uh, it's powerful. Jesus, he quotes Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And sometimes when you read a passage like that, you're like, why did God leave Jesus on the cross? Why did God just abandon Jesus in that moment? Like what, what was going on? Uh, Let me hopefully rephrase that for you. So um, with the Psalms, um, they didn't have chapter and verse back then, okay? And so they didn't have Psalm 22. They just had a psalm. And in order to dictate what psalm you were talking about, you would state the line from the psalm. And when you would state a line from the psalm, the people around you would know the psalm, okay? Because everyone knew them. So when Jesus, um, some scholars believe that Jesus actually sang that, because it's a song that you sing. And he's, so, so get this. Can you imagine being crucified and, and that Jesus says this phrase? Now we read it as he said it, but in, whether he cried it, sang it, whatever. He's trying to draw people into Psalm 22. Well, what is Psalm 22 actually about? When you read the whole psalm, so people would have heard him say that psalm and they'd be like, he is saying this psalm. Why is he saying this psalm? Because the psalm in the end, when you read the whole thing that God comes through. You trust in his faithfulness. And so Jesus from the cross is getting people to think in that moment, I want you to remember God, you can trust God and be faithful in his faithfulness to you. It's a powerful, powerful moment. To see, like, in there, just like, I'm going to take all of this on. I'm going to absorb. Because here's what Jesus does. Instead of retaliating against the people that put him up on that cross, here's what he does. He absorbs and punishes the sin that caused it. That's a powerful, powerful thing to think about. It's like people put him up on that cross, and it was the sin that got him there, but instead of retaliating against the people, what does he do? He goes, no, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to absorb all of this. The wrath of the sin, I'm going to absorb all of it. I'm going to use my life as a ransom for you, and I'm going to punish the sin. Why do I want to punish the sin so you can be free? So you don't have to experience the realities of it. And here's the second thing that's important, that Jesus sets a new way of life. Jesus sets a new way of life. we're gonna sing a song here uh, in just a few minutes, and um, it's called "Death Was Arrested." And uh, there's a, the piece in the song talks about like your grace so free. Uh, and then, and there's one part of the song where we're all just kind of yell out together, you know, we're free, free forever, we're free. And uh, a lot of times it feels like we're singing this grace so free as in a way that's saying like, oh, we're good, we get heaven in this. It's like no. Well, yes, but, but with the, the, the larger meaning to this idea of this grace so free, it's like when you sing those words, here's what you're saying. I'm so free to be the person Jesus desires me to be. I'm so free that I get to experience heaven on earth. That's what grace is. That's what Ephesians 1 actually talks about. I'm so free that man, I'm not, I'm not held to the, the ways of sin. I'm so free because of God's Grace. That's what happened up on that cross. It sets a whole new way of living, a whole new uh, way of life. Um, you're gonna have to, I'm going to nerd out for just a minute, so bear with me. But in that language, in the story, it talks about how the temple, the, the curtain torn in two. And some of you guys might not appreciate this, but get on board. Here's what happens with this story that I think is just so cool. And this is why I love the Bible. It's amazing. So in, in the beginning, here we go. There is Adam and Eve. All right? And in this story, here's what happens there's a tree that they're told not to, to eat from, right? There's actually multiple trees. There's another tree over here. All right? So this tree here is the, the good and evil tree. And they're told, don't eat from that one. Don't eat from that one. And, um, and what do they do, though? They eat from that one, right? So even at the front like first few pages of the story uh, in the book of Genesis we should all be like oh yeah that's me. Like how many guys have know you shouldn't do something but you do it. Yes, right? Right? So we're like mm, I get it. That's me. This is I'm a human. So this has happened." But in this story what ends up happening is this is that after they do that these are angels. We're getting there guys. After they do that this is called the tree of life. Tree of life. And it says these cherubim, these are the angels. The cherubim are, are the defenders of righteousness and holiness and God's truth. And they said they had these flaming swords. And once and sin came in, um, that you did not have access to the tree of life. And that that what ended up happening because like people wanted their own way, and so they're like, "All right, well then you don't get the tree of life. You don't you don't have access to this." And this separation happened between um, God and people. Well, part of the story that ends up being really cool is is after this, um, as time kind of goes on, and we can move to this book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, and people are enslaved. And it starts talking about, man, uh, when God comes on the scene, he's like, I'm the God who frees people. I'm the God who saves people. I'm the God who liberates um, people. And, um, and so I'm going to liberate you guys. I'm going to free you guys. And, and they established this uh, thing called uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this Ark of the Covenant, um, this is a picture. No, I'm not kidding. It's an But it's a drawing of what the Ark looked like. On top of the Ark are cherubim, okay? And, and so here's what this Ark of the Covenant actually had in it. It had um, Aaron's rod, so Moses and Aaron, um, and, and the rod was there to, for the people to remember that God frees his people. It had the Ten Commandments that showed, that it was carried around, as like, all right, this is about God's word, to follow God's word and his uh, truth. And they had manna in there, which means that God always provides, all right? So, so they had all of this in the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark of the Covenant was, oh, and also had this mercy seat on the top of it. It was called the mercy seat, where they would sprinkle blood on it as a sacrifice, and it was for the forgiveness of all people, all right? So this happens, right? And then eventually what ends up happening is they build this temple. Now, the modern-day temple would have looked like that. That's a drawing of it, a replica of it. And this temple, um, inside the temple would have been all these like different um, compartments and rooms and everything where some people could or couldn't go. So it would have been, I know it's hard to see, but it would have looked something like this. And in this section right here, it's called the Holy of Holies. And each one of these sections would have been divided by these big curtains and in particular, the one with the Holy of Holies right there, the Ark of the Covenant well, would have hypothetically been there. Um, and what they would have done is once a year, the high priest could go in there and they would do the sacrifice. They would drip, sprinkle the blood. And um, what would happen is it would be the forgiveness of sin for all, the entire community. And it was supposed to be this re- restoration process, and they would do this on the mercy seat um, that it was called. And it was protected by the cherubim. And then these, this temple was like, that it was built in a way, it was kind of represent kind of this cosmic order that, God, that God's temple is such a big deal. And then the curtains would have all these stars and constellations, and they would also have the cherubim would also be on the curtain. And so what ends up happening is when Jesus dies in this story, it says that the temple curtains get torn down the middle. Why would they tell that part of the story? Like, what does it mean? And ultimately, what we begin to see and what we see um, in this is like, man, when the the veil is torn, here's what happened. The cherubim that were once protecting everything are now gone, and now the new tree of life is the cross. And so they're linking this whole story and all the way to the beginning of creation. And they're saying that, listen, When that veil got torn, here's what you had access to. The new tree of life. When that veil was torn, um, you now have access to forgiveness and connection with God like you never have before. That there's a grace and a mercy that now has set you free. And so now Jesus up on that cross means this, that his victory is your victory. His hope is your hope. His example is, is our example. That Jesus up on that cross and the veil being torn um, means that he's a God of justice, that, um, that we get to see that he is truly king. That Jesus up on that cross sets a new way of life and we see people differently. We have new community, a new hope. That the new people coming in to, to know him, there's no longer separation or favoritism with people in any kind of way. Who is the first person to declare he's the son of God? A centurion. Where did it happen? At the foot of the cross. Do you know why the disciples and the women couldn't declare truly is the son of God? This is the son of God? Because they weren't at the foot of the cross. It's like, man, here's this guy that experienced something different. And he realized what he had access to and it changed everything in his life. Sin no longer spoke for them. The depth of the cross did. And so why do I bring all this stuff up? And Laura, you can come up. The cross should wreck us. (laughs) It really should. It, It should wreck us. I think too often our view of the cross is way too weak. It should wreck our souls. It should... It should maybe even sometimes physically, but at least mentally and emotionally drop us to our knees because of the depth of what the cross means. Now, obviously, we know the end of the story. He, he, you know, he raises from the dead and, and all that, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks, but we begin to see, like, well, then hold on a second. When I look at the cross, then, like, then my shame was also put on the cross. So I want my grace to set me free from that shame. My humiliation, my unforgiveness, my regrets, it's up on the cross too. It starts to change our entire way of living. This is why I said it man, reshapes your mission, your vision, your values, your identity. Too often, here's what we try to do. Let me take those things back off the cross and put them back on me and let sin actually tell my story rather than what Jesus actually did up there. And here's what I want you to know. He, Jesus doesn't want that for you. He wants you to be able to freely say, oh man, this grace is so free. And man that this grace that like allows me to live life to the fullest. This grace that allows me to see who I'm supposed to be. This this grace that gives me hope. This grace that pushes negativity aside and cynicism aside. This this reality that, you know what? Death and sin do not have the last word Jesus does. It's a whole different way of seeing all of it. So I'm going to bow their heads for a second. And just want you to process everything. Here.